Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition We Do Science podcast, and this is 141st episode. Uh, I can't believe it. I'm still cracking these, uh, uh, cracking these on. Um, my guest today is Professor Darren Kanda. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm very good, Darren. Good, uh, good. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending um, some time with me here. I guess the, uh, one of the upsides to these, um, this lockdown scenario that we're all in is, is I'm, I'm uh, better positioned to nail, nail people down uh, for these conversations. And like I said offline, I know there's a bit of doom and gloom going on in the world, mm -hmm. but we're going to make... We're going to make the next hour, hour and a half a little bit rosier for people by talking about creatine. Um, so anyway, yeah, and I know you know a little bit about this topic. So <laughs> we're going to um, come back to that in a second, and I'm going to explain why it is I want to get into this topic with you. Okay. But maybe you could just give us a quick overview as to, to who you are and what you're up to, Darren. Yeah, my name is uh, Dr. Darren Kando. I'm a professor and clinical exercise physiologist at the University of Regina in uh, Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. I uh, did uh, a biology degree and, as my undergrad and then a couple graduate degrees in ergogenic age, primarily focusing on, uh, actually my master's was in glutamine and then it parlayed into uh, the explosion in, I guess it was ever since Roger Harris did his seminal study in 92, it sort of had a, an interest with it. And then I would say the vast majority of my research is focused on creatine. It initially started in, of course, athletes, but uh, it sort of blossomed into aging individuals and special populations. And it's been a whirlwind ever since. And, and I love every minute of it. Uh, we continually write uh, topics of creatine timing, uh, combining it with protein, the safety aspect. So I've been beyond fortunate and lucky to uh, work in an area I absolutely love and um, delighted to have the opportunity to speak with you and uh, tell all your viewers a little bit about more about creatine. Brilliant. Good. So um, now this isn't the first time that I've gotten into this topic. Um, okay. The first episode I did where we focused on creatine, I, I can't believe I'm even going to go as far back as 2014, but I am um, very close to when I started this this podcast as a research tool for my doctorate, actually. Right. And um, Craig was one of my, um, Craig Sale was one of my uh, external supervisors, actually. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Roger Harris, who, of course, was his supervisor. So um, we, we were treated to an overview of, of creatine as we saw it back in 2014. And then in 2016, I did another episode um, um, where we expanded more, more, well, back in 2014, it was more about um, adaptations to training. It's, you know, mm -hmm. the role of ergogenic aid, performance, 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 yep. um, and in the gym as well. And um, we expanded that to, to health and performance with Professor Eric Rawson. Yes. Um, that was back in 2016. So I thought, well, look, it's 2020. Um, I know creatine is one of these, one of these sort of areas that has huge amounts of research and I'm going to help you expand upon that in a minute. Um, and it is, you know, of the many supplements out there, particularly of the many, um, ergogenic aids, it is by far the one that has the most robust, you know, science behind it. So, um, whether or not the evidence has moved forwards a lot, um, since I first got into this in 2014, we're about to find out, but I know that there's some new areas like with aging muscle and so on. So I'm looking forward to, um, 
to uh, to do a, a sort of a, a you know go back to the beginning so to speak with you and yeah. we'll, we'll cover as much as we this of this as we can um so creatine is something obviously you've spent a lot of time mm-hmm. uh on i mean what you know what initially led you down this path you know why why was creatine your focus of choice yeah it was actually interesting when i first started to engage in weight training myself it was the big explosion that dietary supplements were sort of looked at as a it was almost like the area of anabolic steroids like oh these are things these are drugs these are illegal and then when you started to get into uh reading as a graduate student like we all do you pick a topic and you start understanding like the importance of protein and the importance of of protein at that time it was always post-exercise and we went through the phase of the timing of protein doesn't really give you that advantageous effect Maybe for an Olympic gold medalist, it could, but for the average person, we now know it's basically total daily protein intake. And then after Roger's paper, you already mentioned Dr. Sale and Rawson, who are some of the best uh, creatine researchers in the world. And at that about time as well, Dr. Mark Towner, Paul Skinner in Canada, and Paul Greenhalf in the UK, these heavy hitters, I just kept seeing their name all the time. And, and every time you'd read an article, creatine seemed to improve strength well as a young uh, uh, individual, strength was important and then it increased muscle mass. And, and so you just started to see this cascade of results and not all studies work to a positive effect, which is rightfully so. But over time, it was like 80%, 90% of the articles coming out, creatine plus exercise seemed to give a beneficial effect. And I think everybody was trying to get an extra boost. It's no different than before your workday, many of us consume caffeine. If I don't have coffee in the morning, I'm useless. So it's no different than, than looking at, can something give you an extra boost in the weight room or in the gym, basketball court, soccer field, whichever. And so creatine has exploded. I think the last count was, we were almost at a thousand research articles looking at wow. the, it was, uh, yeah. of all the different factors of creatine. And it used to be solely on athletes. And, uh, and then we started to look at some of the potential effects. For Now there's uh, papers on pregnancy, uh, child, uh, child development, adolescent. And my area of research is sort of taken off by mistake or, 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 or chance of aging muscle. We said, well, if we're losing muscle as we get older, our type 2 muscle fibers go away. And then you think, well, wait a minute. Creatine is really found in type 2 muscle fibers. And it really improves muscle mass and strength. Maybe we should shift the focus from younger individuals to a population that costs the healthcare systems trillions of dollars worldwide. And then we can even talk later on about how by accident we found the potential of creatine impact on bone. We look in the mirror, we see body fat and muscle. No one ever says anything about bone. And then all of a sudden, when you look at some of the biochemical reactions of osteoblast cells, they use creatine for fuel just like our body would naturally, and if you can lay down more uh, matrix for a bone, maybe that could have implications for osteoporosis. So it's exploded. We're looking at Parkinson's disease, Huntington's, osteoarthritis. So I conclude it's probably the safest, most overall effective dietary supplement for general health and performance. Hmm. Um, And so I'm super excited to talk about any avenue with that and also to clear up a lot of myths. Yeah, That's still a big area, yeah. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, I was reading one this morning um, yes. about um, how dangerous uh, creatine is to youth, yeah. uh, youth athletes considering mm-hmm. taking it. I'm like, wow, it's 2020 and we're still having these, these thoughts. Right. So let's, um, right, there's quite a lot to get into and um, no doubt we'll cover some areas that 
we have gotten into in previous podcasts, but that's no problem because um, I think it's time that we recap on a few areas, but also take it forwards, like you say, to the aging area. And the reason why I think this is so valuable, um, and I'll, I'll link it to with something I say quite often on this podcast, particularly in the last year or so, is, is I'm not so much of a fan of the idea of sports nutrition because right. it limits what we're doing to sports. Whereas performance nutrition, which is sort of the buzzword now, and you know, like um, in certain, certain uh, countries, like in the UK, for example, we would refer to ourselves as performance nutritionists as opposed to sports nutritionists. So I love that because it goes much further than you know, this, this just quotes unquotes for athletes or people in the gym. And like you say, there are clinical applications and lifestyle related applications health and wellness and so on which we which we will um explore but let's just dial back a bit because not everyone is going to know what we're talking about one way or the other although the only way that they won't have heard about creatine is if one of two things either they've been living under a rock or two they accidentally listened to this podcast thinking it's something completely different so um Let's actually let's start off with just a quick reminder about what an ergogenic aid actually is. Yeah, so the simple definition of an ergogenic aid is any compound that's taken into uh, the human body that's purported to increase work or exercise performance. So ergogenic aids are technically a little bit different than a dietary supplement, which is taken in and absorbed to overcompensate or increase a, a nutrient in the body. Whereas a dietary, or sorry, an ergogenic aid is usually some type of compound uh, commercially uh, created that usually is purported to increase work, exercise, or performance. Or the other big one we're getting now is recovery from exercise. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about creatine, which we will reveal, is that it isn't just an ergogenic aid. It could also be a supplement. Um, so, and Craig Sell had a great approach to this question. I, I'd love mm-hmm. to see how you're going to approach this as well. But, but how would you define a supplement? 99.9% of supplements don't work. They only work te- typically if you have a deficiency and they are sort of like the icing on the cake. So I always say if you were to make a cake, 99% of the cake is foundational and that's usually exercise, sleep, food-based nutrition, recovery, so on and so forth. A little bit of icing that makes everything taste better can be considered creatine. For the protein people out there in the caffeine, you would have the same example. But rarely does someone sit down and eat a tub of icing. They usually have it with cake. So we can yeah. talk about today. Creatine gives you some beneficial effects by itself, but my God, you get a plethora of benefits when it's combined with exercise. It's not an anabolic steroid. So you can't just take creatine, sit on the couch and hope Damn. for the magic of it to be a way. Yeah. So I always say the vast majority of supplements, you pee down the toilet, you make expensive urine. Some are being used, especially if you have a deficiency, but there's probably five to seven that have been consistently shown to be effective. Now, when you say that, there's probably a thousand different ones marketed. At least. But when you only have yeah. five or seven that really work, And the IOC uh, came out with their position scan, I think it was last year. And when you look at all the evidence, yeah, there's going to be anecdotal effects. But when you have like beta alanine, creatine, some proteins, caffeines, there's a handful that people say, oh, those are the the staples. We're always trying to come up with a new one. And and when the research is being tested, 
They never usually hold up. And it can take decades before uh, uh, an ergogenic aid with meta-analysis and RCTs have been concluded they can be effective. But for every study I put out that shows a positive effect, there's probably one right behind it that said, hey, it didn't work because you look at the different populations and things like that. So in a free living human, we all have so much uh, genetic variability, it's quite different. Absolutely. And, and I'll add to that also by saying that uh, a clue is in, is in the word supplement. Um, it's not an instead of, guys. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a supplement. And um, that's an important contextual factor that right. helps us as practitioners or researchers position, position the value um, the relevance, the, the, the need of that substance, in this case, creatine, right. yeah. in our sort of toolbox of, of options. And, um, and, 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 you know, vis a vis, the, the likelihood that that is actually going to have some sort of benefit anyway. Right. And, and of course, the great thing in this situation is that in a cost to benefit or a risk analysis approach to this topic, the great thing about creatine is pretty pretty much what well, you'll help we'll get into this later but there isn't too much risk uh in taking it um but there are a bunch of supplements that um if you take it and you don't need it there are issues i guess the uh you know the, the area of sport and exercise nutrition doesn't tend to go too too far down the road of uh, toxicity risks and so on although i have seen this with people overdosing on vitamin d for example yep. Um, and or pretty nasty effects from overdoing caffeine and, and yes. so on. Yeah. Um, but um, I guess doping uh, risks being the major ones. So, of course, that brings us back to not so much creatine or creatine monohydrate or whatever, um, but where did you get your supplement from and was it tested to ban substances exactly. and so on. So we'll, 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 we'll come back to that. Um, so, you know, look, we've, we, okay, you've, you've made it clear um, what an ergogenic aid is. We've discussed um, the concept of a supplement, um, which brings about um, the next point, I think, is you've already mentioned research and the body of evidence that exists. The thing that always blows me away with supplements and claims for supplements and ergogenic aids is just how strong the claims are mm -hmm. um, versus just how weak the evidence is. Mm -hmm. But this is a topic that has huge amounts of evidence. Maybe you could just give us, I know you've already talked about Roger Harris and, mm -hmm. you know, back in the nineties and so on, but I don't know if everyone truly appreciates the scale of evidence that we have here. But of course, um, there is, um, a hierarchy of quality of this evidence. And of course, some mm -hmm. of these studies are done not so well and, or very small cohorts and, or, you know, not elite athletes, whether that's relevant or not, you know, um, and so on. Maybe you could just give us an idea of that impressive figure you just gave us of about a thousand-ish yeah. studies, which is mind-boggling. Um, and maybe you could parallel that with a few other well-known supplements with just how few studies there are, and yet we treat them the same way in the in the food supplement store. Yeah, I mean uh, the late 1800s when Chevrolet uh, distract or extracted creatine from mead, it was you know centuries ago, and then all of a sudden when Eric Holtman and Roger Harris they started to really push, and there were seminal studies in, in the early 1900s, and then Paul Greenhalgh and Mark Ternopolsky and Craig Sale and Eric Rawson and people like that, and then you look at the the heavy hitters Richard Kreider, uh, Phil Chilovac, it just goes on and on, and so it's become a global 
uh, um, issue. Bruno Gualiano in Brazil does a phenomenal amount of medical research on creatine. So it's expanded and exploded. And, and when it came to athletes and of course money is hugely uh, uh, driving incentive. If you can make the athlete bigger, stronger, faster, you had huge potential for worldwide sport and exercising individuals. So in the 1992 uh, Olympics, Linford Christie, obviously creatine. So all of a sudden Olympic gold medals taken. Well, that means everybody is going to be endorsing this compound. And people said, well, it had to be a steroid because it has steroid-like properties. So re your reviewers, be careful. I didn't say it's a steroid. It just has properties because it increases muscle mass, strength, power, and it helps substantially in recovery. So all those things are typically what, if an Olympic athlete would like that, most exercising individuals do as well. And then when you look at the plethora of studies, we start to look at randomized control trials and then governmental registered uh, trials. And then that formulates meta-analysis all down to acute experimental studies. And it's it exploded. And to your point, yeah, there's some studies that, you know, the sample size is low, the dosing protocol hasn't been consistent. There's some potential for side effects if they do a loading phase versus a non-loading phase. So there's a whole bunch of strategies we can look at, but overall, it's one of those compounds that you can get in your diet. As most of your viewers know, creatine is just three amino acids, arginine, glycine, methionine, comes together in your kidney and then moves to your liver to produce creatine. We produce about two to three grams a day and we excrete about two to three grams in our urine. The problem is there's never been a study ever that has looked at dietary creatine from food on performance. It's all supplementation. And the reason is when we look at the dosages, it's very difficult to get the dose of creatine, even if it's little as three grams on a daily basis through your diet. It's red meat or seafood or poultry and with huge explosion in being a vegetarianism or ethical issues of animals or sustainability from the planet a lot of individuals say well creatine is relatively cheap i can take it and put it in a smoothie or take it with water and it seems to be effective whereas when you look at the protein supplements or the caffeine supplements or beta alanine a little bit more expensive most of us maybe consume uh, uh, caffeine through our, our habitual coffee intake beta alanine this has to be through a commercial supplementation form. And of course, protein, people say, I don't have time to eat or I can't afford all this expensive dietary protein. I'm going to buy a jug of whey protein or whichever and have it as a recovery shake. Um, and again, to your point, there's only about five or seven that have shown to be effective. But all the individual amino acids, a lot of vitamins, trace amounts, pre-workouts, we don't know what's really in there. Um, when you take something into the human body, a lot of individuals don't realize just because it's in a product in a store um, in North America, the FDA just says we now are hope that these ingredients haven't hurt anybody. They're not regulating the dosages per se. We're just looking at the body of evidence. So supplements are regulated, but I might take a supplement and you can take the same supplement. We might react differently. So that's why you really have to, to go by science and clinical trials and meta-analysis to come up the or, or potential harms outweighing the beneficial effects and vice versa. Yeah, and uh, that's brilliant, thank you. And I think um, just so we can really, um, no pun intended, get into the meat of this, um, let, let's just quickly get into, oh, you've already hinted at what creatine actually is. Mm -hmm. Let's just, just, just quickly get into what it is and you know where does it come from and where is it stored and those sorts of things and then we'll then we'll have a good chat about metabolism which i think will be okay. interesting yeah so it's primarily found in red meat seafood and poultry 
Uh, seafood probably has the highest concentration of dietary creatine. So creatine is considered, uh, if ATP or adenosine triphosphate is the main cellular energy of the cell, and if that's Batman, I would say creatine or fossil creatine is Robin. They go hand in hand, they're always a good team. So the last thing we want is our ATP levels decreasing uh, playing soccer, football, whichever it is. And of course, what maintains creatine levels during the anaerobic events of, of uh, less than 15 seconds of high intensity exercise is fossil creatine. So creatine sort of sacrifices itself to maintain cellular energy. So the theory was that if the human muscle has more cellular energy, it can lift heavier weights, longer time, and of course you get the adaptations. It can allow the soccer player to run faster and recover between shifts uh, uh, quicker. So it had application for not just the weight room, which most of us consider creatine to be, but for athletic sports as well. And then it has a phenomenal ability to recover the muscle so you can get back in the gym and train uh, more frequently. So it's primarily found in those three uh, food sources. Uh, that's why we speculate that vegetarians respond so well to supplementation. As a human, we have about a, a maximal ceiling of about 160 millimoles per uh, dry muscle uh, capacity of, of creatine. So the average person is around 80 to 90. So we think that supplementing with creatine gives you about a 20% increase in your normal capacity. Now, there's been an expansion of, of research on brain health as well as bone. So when we hear about a maximal dosage of creatine, that's only related to muscle. Mm -hmm. All the other areas are still in its infancy. We don't know how much we need in the brain. We, do, we actually think it's a lot more. So creatine is primarily stored. 95% of it that you take in is in our skeletal, skeletal muscle. But less than 5% is in our brain, bone, and testes. But skeletal muscle doesn't make creatine. So that's why it's all taken in there, whereas our brain does. So that's why we think there's preliminary evidence that can have potential effects for cognition and mild traumatic brain injury, but we may need a lot larger dosage. And then if you're on a carnivore diet, people say, well, I'm not going to respond. So maybe later we talk about responders and non-responders to creatine as a huge area. Yeah. Uh, why someone will take it, say, I didn't feel anything, where someone say they take it and they did. And then we get into populations that are so underrepresented. Young females do not like creatine because of the main mechanisms of how it works. It increases water retention in the first week if you're a responder. And most individuals don't like putting on weight. And unfortunately, young females are so underrepresented in research uh, because they typically withdraw. They say, I don't like gaining weight uh, in this study. Um, and, and it's one of the biggest side effects of creatine. It causes our muscles to swell. You put on water retention, but when, for those who say, I put on water retention, I'm like, that's fantastic, because it's probably indicating that it's turning on this cascade of things in the cell to turn on, and that could lead to help explain muscle mass, strength, performance. So I beg my participants, if you can just hold off for about 10 days, the water retention will reside. Some people say, I put on five pounds in the first week. For a power lifter or someone putting, wanting to put on mass, they love it. Other people say, well, I don't like this. I don't like the feeling. And so that's one of the issues with some types of creatine. Yeah, that, you, you, these are the pitfalls of doing research, of course. Right. And, uh, and, and I can cross the bridge to practice on this one and say it is just like working with, with people where we're trying to um, bring about positive changes in body composition. But for them, there's a simple cause and effect. I, I didn't lose weight. My scales have told me I've not lost weight. Therefore, this diet is not working. You're fired, right. Mr. Nutritionist. Yep. Um, and um, that brings me to something I just quickly wanted to ask, because from a practical perspective, 
you know, for us as practitioners primarily and or consumers um, that are trying to do this, um, you know, uh, outside of a lab setting where um, actually it'd be, it'd be great for you to, to tell us how you actually measure creatine content of, of tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is not so easily done for us in the real world. So, you know, we've, we've had similar conversations when we've talked to, or when I've talked to um, expert guests on this podcast about, well, you know, um, uh, glycogen levels, you know, wh- 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 when, when's the muscle actually reached its, you know, capacity? When is it empty? You know, what are the signs and the symptoms? How do we measure that? Um, th- that would be a useful one. Maybe you could quickly tell us how, how do you actually establish, um, you know, the, 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 the levels of creatine in the tank, so to speak in the lab. And then maybe how can we attempt to guess demate, uh, creatine levels in the real world? I would say it's probably one of the biggest issues we come across as a researcher. So for example, the, the best way is a muscle biopsy and you would measure your initial uh, fossil creatine content content. Super expensive. We still use a Bergstrom noodle uh, or a needle. I was very fortunate to have muscle biopsies performed on myself and actually uh, watch the demonstration. And so you usually need medical training and then ethics board. And then, you know, you, especially as you get to an older population, you want to take a piece of muscle out of the aging body that's already losing it. So that's becoming an issue. And then spectroscopy is another thing, super expensive to estimate your uh, initial creatine levels. So I would say if there's a hundred paper study, 99 do not measure the person or participants initial creatine levels Mm. for some of those reasons. So we speculate that everybody's going to respond to creatine. But then all of a sudden, when you look at the data, maybe 75% had a positive increase. And then some like didn't have any change even during weight training. So there's so many variables that dictate it from an ethics perspective, financially, and then people say they just don't want to, or their university or laboratory may not have the capability to do wet lab research. Um, and, and so in all the meta-analysis or papers, and we just published one last year, but we think that the initial uh, intramuscular creatine levels dictate your responsiveness to it. So if you're eating red meat, seafood on an abundance on a daily basis, and you naturally have a lot of creatine in your muscle, probably not going to respond well from a performance standpoint. Whereas a vegan or a vegetarian who have low amounts from the diet, give them an exogenous supplement, they seem to respond quite uh, drastically. And there's other areas, type 2 muscle fiber, as we lose that with aging, well, that's where creatine is found. Uh, and then sex, we start to see some mixed evidence to suggest that females have higher creatine levels for some reason. So if they have higher levels, they may not respond as well. We don't seem that creatine reduces protein breakdown in females as well as males. And then the other thing with aging, some individuals have shown that aging individuals have higher creatine levels, but the majority say lower. So that's maybe why the aging muscle may respond on a positive manner uh, to supplementation. So overall, I would say the biggest factor is your yes, as you talked about initial creatine levels, 99 out of 100 studies do not measure it. And it's a guessing game. And then usually in the limitation sections of all our studies, say, unfortunately, we didn't measure anything from muscle fiber morphology, muscle protein kinetics, only the powerful wet labs, super expensive to do, measure it. And, and those are quite prestigious in, in big time journals, things like that. Yeah, great. Yeah. And I mean, this is the exciting thing, I guess, about technological developments, right. you know, and I know there have been some 
sort of fancy gadgets, um, you know, um, um, that have started to attempt to look at things like, you know, water content, um, thinking bioimpedance and so on, yep. and also um, near-infrared. And um, anyway, there's various other gadgets right. that are out there. I know that we're not there yet, um, but we're uh, maybe going to escape the biopsy needle in the near future, which would, yeah. um, which would be it. But basically what you're telling us is that we have to, intelligently assess the scenario and and critically think through the processes which is why we need to understand the mechanisms of action um, and have a look at everything that we're doing including like you say in females a consideration of time of month um, which is also too, isn't it yeah um, so I want to explore some of those areas so that we can truly understand what creatine is and and um, and how it actually works um, and let's just quickly start then with, um, is it creatine or is it creatine monohydrate or is it like, what, what, what are we actually talking about here? Yeah, excellent. The vast majority of work is always creatine monohydrate because it's linked to water. So it, 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 there's been creatine phosphate, creatine kinase, they're all there. They all have potential. The vast body of evidence will only consistently support the effects of monohydrate. And the reason being is one of the best mechanistic actions uh, by Balsam in 95 came out in a study, creatine will cause an increase in cellular hydration status. And this leads to what they call a water retention effect. And the monohydrate is where it's an osmotic effect, sort of draw fluid and, and uh, expand, if you will, the muscle fiber environment. And then when you expand the muscle fiber environment, such as a cell swelling, picture a balloon being blown up, picture your muscle, it sort of turns on all the genes, transcription factors, satellite cells, which come together in a multifactorial ability, which may help contribute to an increase in muscle mass. Protein is, or sorry, creatine has never directly been shown to increase the mTOR pathway. It's been shown to increase some of the downstream kinases, but from a myofibular protein synthetic rate, which dietary protein has been shown to, creatine has yet to been shown to do that. But it seems to turn on so many other things, insulin-like growth factor one, it decreases myostatin. So we can talk about the multifactorial effects of creatine, whereas dietary protein or protein in general is pretty self-explanatory. It really has an effect on protein synthesis and breakdown, whereas creatine seems to have a variety of potential effects within the, the cell. And that's one of the factors. So we only use monohydrate. Research overwhelmingly only supports monohydrate. Uh, there's some variations out there that say it doesn't lead to water retention and things like that. So it's hard to comment on acute or a few studies. I'm sure with technology, there's a, new, a couple of new companies trying to uh, put creatine in solutions, make it more stable. So we, as you talked about technology and advancements, I'm sure that's coming. But we typically always give creatine in a capsule or powder. And, and it's been a, a simple delivery agent uh, that's been effective, uh, but we only ever have used monohydrate. And in our position stand, the ISSN, we've looked at or briefly mentioned other ones, but the vast majority of only looks at monohydrate, probably because it's linked to water for the hydration status. Yeah, and you know, look, th that massive amount of evidence that exists right. that gives it the great name that it's got is for mm -hmm. creating monohydrate. And it just so happened that that's the best value form anyway, because all is. the other stuff is a lot more expensive. So, yeah. you know, why, why bother? It's, uh, yeah. again, the crazy world of, um, 
of marketing and um, commercialism and so on. Right. But, um, what we're talking about here is creating monohydrate. So, right, okay, so look, we, we know that there are a number of side effects mm -hmm. um, which are largely positive. So you gain weight, which is a positive side effect if you want it to be. Um, but it is a risk. You know, I'm thinking certain types of athletes um, where they don't want to gain weight and it's not right. because they don't like seeing the number increase and mm -hmm. it sets off anxiety. It is genuinely not great for their performance to be carrying additional weight, which is obviously something we need to factor in and we'll discuss how that happens in a minute. You've already alluded to it um, already. Um, but also the, another side effect is a potential increase in strength. Mm -hmm. Um, so could you just delve into this a little bit deeper then into, you know, we, we're aware that it works and we're aware of, you know, the outcomes of, of taking this stuff, but just, you know, in terms of how, how does this actually result in me or any you know, anyone, as in a proper athlete, not me, obviously, um, result in becoming bigger, faster, even potentially stronger. Um, and then after that, we'll, we'll talk about some of the downsides that could not necessarily affect health, but could affect performance. Yeah, it may come down to the, what the intent of the person is. So, for example, there's different strategies we've talked about. And one way we get away from the weight gain is we rarely ever implement a loading phase. So for the athlete in these short-term studies, it's very common that Roger showed uh, 20 grams a day for five to seven days is really the, one of the, probably the best way to saturate the muscle really quickly. So for the athlete that has a big competition uh, coming up in, in the short term, most athletes would take 20 grams a day for five to seven days. That's 10 times as much as we take in. When you hear of muscle cramping or GI tract irritation or some of those things, that's usually during the loading phase. We usually base it on an absolute dose or more specifically a, a relative dose of 0.1 gram per kilogram. So we have all our individuals uh, go on a scale and then if you're 70 kilograms, 80, they're all taking a different dose. When we do that type of uh, protocol, we don't see a lot of people gain a lot of weight. And so it becomes more of a popular strategy. They're taking a smaller amount per day. But of course, we do that for a longer period of time, six weeks all the way up to a couple of years. So it really comes down to the strategy. but I, or contrasting to a lot of people, they think as soon as they ingest it once, they're going to become bigger, stronger, faster. We see that the magic of creatine works when you combine it with weight bearing or exercise. Very few studies have been shown that you can take creatine by itself and get an increase in muscle endurance, peak torque, power, strength. The vast majority says when you take creatine with a resistance training program, you will get an increase in muscle mass and strength more than just resistance training alone. So it is the icing on the cake. The three meta-analyses that, that have, or sorry, four meta-analyses that have been formed on creatine and resistance training, you get about a 1.3 kilogram greater increase in muscle mass when you take creatine and weight training versus weight training alone. So a three and a half pound increase over time could be substantial to an athlete or maybe more specifically to an aging individual that's losing muscle mass. So it also has an increase in strength as well. So when we take it into the body, it goes through digestion, it's taken up into our, our muscle instantaneously or even in the acute bout. But we start to see when studies are less than maybe four weeks, no effect. It seems to be about a six week or even longer term study is required with exercise. But if you want to measure the effects of five days of creatine loading, it can be effective. 
but the results or, or the research is almost split right down the, the middle. And we think the vast majority says exercise should be the catalyst, sort of turn on the magic power. Whereas if you drink a cup of coffee, it's a drug effect of adenosine. You don't need to exercise to get the effects of caffeine. It sort of does the effect. You can take creatine, you may get some cellular benefits, but to get to what I think a lot of people are trying to do, you don't get stronger without actually putting in the work. So this isn't something you just take and it magically uh, occurs, so to speak. Yeah, no, I'm pleased you you mentioned that. Um, like I always say, it's a tool in the toolbox. Um, but again, you know, we need to question the average, you know, the, well, the quality of that person's diet in the first place. Are they, do they even have a sufficient quantity where the risks are more likely in plant-based eaters uh, quite simply because as you've already pointed out that creatine um is is high in animal tissue as opposed right. to uh vegetable you know as opposed to, to to be found in vegetables um let, let's just 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 quickly go back to um creatine storage and usage and so on um because i think it's you know we sort of Again, at least maybe it's just me and I'm over oversimplified, but I always visualize things, you know, when I yeah. when I think of this is you, you think of uh, you know, glycogen like fuel in the in the storage tank. Right. How should we be looking at creatine monohydrate? Um, you know, in what form is it, you know, is is it stored as creatine monohydrate and used as creatine monohydrate? And you know, where 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 would we find it if we were taking a peek into the muscle anyway? Yeah, so basically it's taken into the body through digestion and once it leaves uh, uh, the intestine, it's taken up through a sodium-based uh, transporter and taken into your skeletal muscles. So picture the, your bicep, tricep, whichever it is. And so 95% of it is stored there, but it's not stored as creatine monohydrate. It's stored, basically it's taken into the body as free creatine and as phosphorylated. So phosphorylation basically is called PCR, which a lot of your viewers have read. And that's the main energy currency of high energy phosphate metabolism to maintain your ATP levels. So the creatine is phosphorylated. As soon as you move, picture running on a treadmill or doing a first couple repetitions of a bench press, your ATP levels basically are degraded. The phosphate bond supplies the energy. And then basically phosphocreatine donates its phosphate group, creates high energy, and if you add a phosphate group to adenosine diphosphate, you're maintaining ATP levels. So unfortunately, your phosphocreatine levels substantially uh, become reduced during the, the initial stages of exercise. The theory is if you have more creatine in the muscle, you get faster PCR or recovery from the mitochondria when you're breathing. And that can delay or expand your anaerobic alactic system. So for the average human that's not on creatine, Maybe your high explosive energy system lasts maybe 10 seconds. With creatine, you might be able to last 20 or sorry, 12, 13, 14 seconds. So you're expanding that energy system. And if your fossil creatine is using energy first, that's delaying the reliance on glycogen, which is your next big energy source. So that decreases potentially glycogen depletion, which is hugely important for intermittent sports for long duration. Uh, and that delays, of course, oxidative phosphorylation or more reliance on protein and fat. So the overall theory is if you take in more high-intensity energy, you can exercise longer at a higher intensity, and that may lead over time with training to being bigger, faster, and stronger. Right. And, you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking also, you know, you, you refer to the increase in 
water content that's going to occur right. in that environment. Um, and, you know, the, the, the water is not just there for, for the creatine. It's going right. to do other things. It's going to uh, be involved in other processes. Right. You know, is, is that an additional benefit potentially in certain circumstances or, you know, or is it a potential concern as well in certain yeah. scenarios? I, I argue that it's one of the biggest myths and benefits of creatine. So a lot of people say, well, creatine dehydrates you. I get muscle cramping, dehydration. It's terrible for the athlete, especially exercising in hotter environments. But if you look at the osmotic effect, if it retains water in the muscle, especially that's more important, it's a hydrating compound. So why isn't it beneficial? And then you look at some of the overwhelming research. It doesn't lead to dehydration. If anything, it may hyperhydrate the muscle, which causes a more favorable environment. And if the muscle is full more of water, that helps maintain muscle protein synthesis and decrease breakdown. So we actually think it's a potential beneficial effect, especially in hotter environments where dehydration or water intake can be a limiting factor. Great. Thanks for wrapping that one up. That's, that's awesome. So look, there's a number of different scenarios. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll come to the clinical stuff in a minute, but you know, the, the obvious one is you think of people in the gym and you know, they're taking their creatine to help them increase, you know, their muscle mass, improve right. their response to training adaptations and, and so on and so forth. Um, and you've already told us about that and you can, you can add to that also if you wish. Um, but also there are other kinds of train, you know, people are training for other reasons other than just mm -hmm. gaining big, big muscles or want to become, you know, lymphocristes and faster. Yeah. Um, what about them? You know, the endurance athletes, for example, yeah. what, 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 what are your thoughts on how creatine might play a, a beneficial role in that population? Yeah, I would say about three decades ago, everybody would say there's no research to suggest that creatine is beneficial for aerobic uh, exercise events such as cycling, swimming, uh, so on and so forth. And the theory was, well, if creatine is anaerobic, a lot of endurance athletes or endurance type activities use different energy systems. So that's probably why a creatine wouldn't work. And there's a lot of evidence to support that. However, in the last decade, a couple of researchers have looked at creatine loading prior to running a, a marathon or doing a triathlon. And all of a sudden it was this new area of research Creatine seem to decrease cytokines, inflammatory markers post-exercise, uh, interleutin-6 and tumor necrosis factor alpha. And so all of a sudden, if creatine can be taken before a big event or something that's long duration, aerobically based, and it decreases inflammation, and we know inflammation is a huge marker for decreasing, or sorry, increasing protein breakdown, that could allow that athlete to recover faster, get in the gym, feel whichever, and exercise on a more frequent basis. So um it had a new area of research and now one of the biggest mechanisms of creatine it acts as an anti-inflammatory just like taking a tylenol or an advil or a nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory it has anti-inflammatory effects and then of course that has massive implications on the mitochondria it may decrease reactive oxidative species uh and then allow the mitochondria to recover faster so now we actually see when people say, hey, it, it may increase muscle mass and muscle endurance. That's potential for aerobic endurance. In the paper we published last year, we actually saw that creatine has the potential to decrease aerobic or endurance-based inflammation because it's extended. So it now has potential application for long duration uh, events. It's not gonna probably make you run faster during the race or whichever it is, but it could make you recover or exercise longer. 
So it went away from just being uh, using the weight room. It could have applications for intermittent sports. I'm thinking uh, obviously over in the UK football, which is our soccer, 90 minutes or so or longer, they're jogging all the way around. And if you ask a, a high intensity athlete, they may say, geez, I, I have muscle soreness for days after. Maybe creatine beforehand in a, a safe, effective way could speed up recovery, allow that athlete to get back on the field or pitch, whichever it is the next day. Whereas the average person on placebo may say, you know, I'm, I have too much muscle soreness. I can't exercise at the same rate. So I'd be very shocked if Olympic athletes training, especially for next year, are not considering creatine depending on the type of sport from a recovery standpoint. So it has emerged into this multifactorial uh, um, compound. It's considered an anabolic, but in our papers, we conclude it's just as anti-catabolic. And so maybe some of the main mechanisms, it preserves or recovers what you naturally have allowing you to get back into the gym to maintain a frequency and repetitive training strategy with it. So from an aerobics perspective, will it make the person swim longer? Maybe not, um, just based on the energy systems you're using. But if it's basically looking at a recovery age, some people should look at it from that perspective. Yeah. I, you know, as you're saying that, I'm also thinking, and again, I, I get into this conversation about the language that we use in science and the propensity to go down the reductionist you know way of things is all necessary of course but that's not necessarily how we should view these things when we're looking to apply it into practice and or consider you know the 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 relevance of those mechanisms um which a lot of that research helps inform our understanding of the mechanisms but because of the reductionist sort of thing we 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 attempted to think that you're either anabolic or you're catabolic but right. no, no no it's all happening at the same time yeah. you know we breathe in we breathe out and right. um and that's something i just wanted to quickly stick with because you know we yeah we're we're talking about you know how creatine for example you know plays a role in in how the muscle functions in terms of of its performance and even in how it might recover from that but muscle isn't you know there's other things that are going on within that environment um and i'm thinking for example substrate utilization and um again it's this it, it people tend to polarize themselves into you either should or shouldn't take creatine mm -hmm. uh, and you know we i'm a big fan of you know strategic approaches to things like periodized nutrition is a big thing now i work a lot with um team sports, but also uh, endurance, ultra endurance, mm -hmm. you know, where periodized nutrition is a big thing. We're trying to bring about optimizing um, substrate utilization in favor of, you know, for example, um, um, for an, you know, an ultra endurance athlete, we want them to be able to run for as long as possible and mm -hmm. preserve those precious stores of carbohydrate whilst maximizing their usage of, of fat as a fuel, but not at the expense of, they're, you know, they're, they're being able to, to get into, you know, fifth or sixth gear when they need to. Mm -hmm. um, so, the, so where I'm coming at, Darren, is people tend to take creatine long term mm -hmm. if they're going to do it. Right. And, and we know, you know, we know that that's harmless for the most part and um, is, is beneficial to a lot of people who are simply just going to the gym to work out or... Right. Strength conditioning is a great aid, of course, for, for our athletes. But what about, you know, those other things that are going on in the muscle? And you mentioned mitochondria. 
Um, and I'm thinking, you know, the impact on things like mitochondrial biogenesis and substrate utilization. What are your thoughts on that, that we should know when factoring, you know, the pros and cons of taking creatine? Yeah, actually, a study just came out the other day. It was a cellular study that creatine increased mitochondrial biogenesis. So mitochondria, is, of course, everybody knows it's a powerhouse of the cell. Little do they know it's the main organelle for uh, inflammation and oxidative stress. And the more mitochondria we have, the better off everybody is. And so you take a power lifter and they get enormous muscle mass and strength. But if they only do power lifting with one or two repetitions, they get they get a dilution in mitochondrial and capillary density. So that's why an individual's endurance capacity goes down. And so a lot of individuals will do more repetitions and hopefully maintain that over time. So uh, the creatine has not been shown to directly increase in human skeletal muscle with exercise mitochondrial biogenesis, but it certainly enhances the health or the function of the mitochondria because it decreases some of those uh, um, factors. The other big thing is with creatine, you, you alluded to glycogen. New evidence from uh, um, uh, Brazil looking at type 2 diabetics. Creatine has been shown to increase GLUT4 transport protein. So the doorways that allow glucose to come into the cell. Every athlete should be just smiling right now because if creatine can allow uh, a more glucose to come into the cell, as soon as glucose comes in, it's trapped. It doesn't leave and it gets forming glycogen or it's used for, or for energy uh, through glycolysis. So that could also potentially improve uh, performance. Um, regarding fat oxidation, we did a meta-analysis that creatine may have a potential beneficial effect in aging individuals with body fat, and it seems to have some ability to increase the energy expenditure of the cell, uh, potentially down the cytochrome oxidase transport uh, a chain in the mitochondria. So it has a whole cascade of events or effects within the cell itself. And of course, then you get the phenotypical outward appearance where if someone says, I've been working out and they might got an increase in muscle mass, maybe body fat has gone down as well. So it has a whole bunch of other beneficial effects as well. Great. And um, of course, we've, we've been talking about muscle, but we haven't differentiated um, for want of simplistic terminology, uh, young muscle, Right. Um, an old muscle. Um, you made a comment about females earlier, but also female muscle and male muscle. Um, is, is there anything there that we need to, to be aware of from the evidence? Yeah, so the young uh, um, sex difference in muscle, there, there is none, basically. Uh, they all respond quite well from a, a muscle morphology perspective. But we start to see at the fourth decade leading into the fifth and subsequent over time, we start to lose type two uh, or sorry, muscle fibers and primarily type two are the large muscle fibers that uh, a lot of power events uh, really rely on or weightlifting, things like that. So at around the fifth decade is when we're starting to substantially lose type two muscle fibers. Uh, we don't really lose these type one because there's a process called denerviation, renerviation, where you kind of, the ones you go for a walk or you use typing notes, things like that, we use those more often. But we very rarely see someone 60, 70, 80 years of age playing tackle football or playing elite sports. And it's like the chicken or the egg. Is it the body that's sort of changing that's causing us to be less intensely active? Or we just choose to because it's more difficult. Um, and so once we start losing these big muscle fibers, uh, ironically, creatine is found primarily in your type 2 muscle fibers. So that's why we see that aging individuals, it's a target population we focus on a lot. Postmenopausal females, aging males, 
uh, later on in life, they can respond very favorably because maybe creatine is just replacing some of the offset that's naturally occurring. So there is a difference when we get young muscle versus aging. I personally consider aging muscle 15 above because that's usually where the machinery really starts to, to kick into gear. But if you're 47, is that aging muscle? We don't know because then you have to look at the training status, diet, genetics. There's a whole bunch of, of, of factors. But from a, a research perspective, there's a lot of good reviews. Say around the fourth decade, the machinery starts to go. You talk to the average person, they're going, yeah, I can't recover nearly like I used to in my 30s. It's taking a little bit longer. I'm taking more Advil more often. And, and then when you get 50, 60, all the way up to centurions, the inflammation is elevated probably because of the mitochondria. So as we get older, we think aerobic exercise is really important to maintain mitochondrial biogenesis in addition to weight training. So I always try to tell my students, if you just weight train, it's phenomenal. If you just do aerobic exercise, great. But if you're considering both, I think you're going to get more bang for your dollar from an overall cellular perspective. Absolutely. And, you know, muscle isn't always healthy it can be right. diseased or or injured does that change the the situation here or is it again additive yeah a hundred percent so the more inflamed the muscle is the more inactive the individual is a uh, creatine or other types of nutrients or just food-based uh, healthy nutrition can have potential huge beneficial effects from an anti-inflammatory perspective but getting the valuable macronutrients primarily protein and then creatine sort of acts like that as well, giving you, again, another slight, small beneficial effect. And what about, you know, what about the hormonal influence? Mm -hmm. um, I know I mentioned young and old and males and females, and of course there's a hormonal yeah. link there. But of course, some people are exogenously inputting hormones, of course, right. and or certain scenarios negatively impact you know hormones and uh, you know I'm obviously you've just mentioned aging but there are things in life called stress and various other right. factors um what what is the implications for the hormonal influence on yeah it's funny i'm the obviously you can see me i'm the worst person to say that but i still hear it every day they say creatine kills dht so you it influences baldness i'm like there's no evidence until i look in the mirror with that as well but we still hear that and then when you look at all the data just because a hormone is turned on or upregulated, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a phenotypical effect i can blame my, my mom's side of this for sure but the only one when it comes to creatine we see that is insulin like growth factor which is a, a growth factor it's not insulin uh, a little bit of different it seems to be turned on as well and then myostatin which is the the muscle inhibitory growth factor, it seems to be down-regulated. So creatine can have some of those effects as well. But we don't see a lot of evidence where creatine affects growth hormone, testosterone, free or bound, estrogen. So it's one of these things that seem to be independent of hormonal regulation. Um, it seems to have a, a number of other effects besides those growth factor ones we've already talked about. Brilliant. And, you know, look, when we think about performance or, or function, I guess a lot of us tend to think about, you know, the football pitch or the gym mm -hmm. or, or whatever, but athletes also need to perform in certain kinds of environments, whether right. it's altitude or right. heat, for example. Right. I know a lot of the people that I've worked with in the past or still work with, and I'm thinking like, you know, um, specialist military operators yeah. to ultra endurance athletes have some pretty wild environments they have to operate in. Is there some additional considerations that um, we might involve creatine with on that? 
Yeah, I think the big, uh, uh, sorry, the majority of evidence would lean towards hotter environments. So uh, uh, two-a-day practices in the, in the hotter environments, and that's based on what we talked about earlier, probably the hydrating effect. Um, but it also, regarding hypoxia or different types of altitude training, I'm not aware specifically of, of evidence, but when you look at the anaerobic environment, creatine may actually have some type of uh, potential benefit there. It may, there is evidence it can have a, an effect on red blood cells or uh, VEGF, some of these factors that can be induced with uh, hypoxia. Uh, but military is a huge area that research with creatine and military is, is so limited. And you look at the demands that military training, uh, depending on the country or continent that you're in, put on these individuals. Sometimes it could be two, three, four a day uh, jogging, training, hot environments, wearing gear, the weight uh, of some of the equipment. Um, so I think from the Department of Defenses around the world, uh, creatine should be considered. I know there was a, some uh, a preliminary evidence looking at creatine for space flight because it could potentially offset the negative effects of anti-gravity on bone as well as, as muscle. When it comes down to funding and labs to do that, the, the cost is quite there. So I definitely think as we move into the next decade with military especially, or first responders, ambulance, police, how can this maintain potentially cognition? Uh, is there other benefits to the bone as well as the body? Uh, I think some uh, first responders are maybe taking creatine if they're continually exercising, but there's so many other potential. Again, that's the key word, potential effects. But I think the military uh, has potentially enormous impact for there, and it's an area that I, hopefully some researchers that have uh, ability to get funding for that, or of course then when it becomes governmental, are they allowing their personnel to take dietary supplements uh, when it can, uh, when it comes to life or death, so to speak. So those are the, all the issues that come into play, but a huge area of potential. Yeah, it's a, it'll certainly be exciting to see, you know, the continued research in this area, particularly yes. with the this this damn pandemic. Um, know. You know, is going to increase the need to look into health, and you know, the exciting side of it will be the implications of performance, nutrition, strategies right. for active people. Yes. Um, which brings me back to. Um, you know, the, 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 we've been talking a lot about muscle and you just mm. mentioned bone. Um, did a brilliant podcast recently with Craig Sale and uh, Kirsty Elliott Sale, all about protein and bone and, and right. so on, um, um, very, very recently. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I recall, I think, I think Craig mentioned creatine um, uh, in that context as well. But, but how, how is creatine going to benefit bone? I mean, why would, why would we be thinking about um, that side of things? Yeah, there's probably only 10 studies published or maybe a few more on creatine and bone. And it was kind of not by direct uh, accident, but when you look at the cellular effects. So if you picture these osteoblasts or bone building cells and you put those into a Petri dish, if you were to add creatine, they sort of become energized. And so the theory there was that if these osteoblasts or bone building cells use creatine and the creatine kinase reaction for fuel, if they're more active, they could be laying down more bone matrix. So obviously you might get an increase in bone deposition or uh, bone formation. The other side of it, very similar to the, the anti-catabolic effects of the muscle, creatine really seems to break down or sorry, decrease bone resorption. So we had urinary markers of uh, bone breakdown. And then in the presence of exercise, creatine sort of decreased the excretion of osteoclast or uh, an indicator of bone resorption. 
So if you decrease bone breakdown and increase synthesis, you get a net uh, bone building effect. The problem with bone is it takes about a year before you get a significant increase or turnover. So that's why a lot of these studies, they were too short in duration to ever make conclusions. And if you get an increase in bone mineral content through dual energy x-ray optometry or a DEXA scan, the only issue with DEXA is only measuring the cylinder. It doesn't measure what's really inside the bone. So then, of course, people say, well, we need to measure by CT scans. Well, those are millions of dollars. So a lot of labs weren't using CT scans to measure bone. They were using it for other biological uh, effects. So uh, there's been, I, I've been fortunate to, to do some bone research. Bruno Gualiano is the other main researcher in Brazil. And we've done studies up to two years. And creatine, uh, we've done meta-analysis saying that creatine may not have any greater beneficial effect on bone. Doesn't have any delirious or detrimental effects. Uh, but in the studies that have shown creatine have a positive effect on bone, they've been combined with resistance training and the training has usually been done three times a week. So again, showing that you need resistance or weight-bearing exercise mm. to unlock the potential of bone. And the studies that we've seen the best benefit, they've been in aging postmenopausal females. And that may, may make sense uh, to the viewers. They say, okay, the cessation of estrogen, creatine may have some bone-building effects, and it just basically decreases the rate of loss. And we have some really good RCT evidence uh, coming out, I presented some of it at ISN in Italy last uh, November, that creatine actually has the potential to increase bone strength. But again, we're still in its preliminary, way more research needs to be done. Uh, but it has been shown to decrease uh, incidence of osteoarthritis. And it decreases the rate of loss primarily around the, uh, the hip region. Now, the reason I bring up the hip, that's crucial because as we get older and we fall, depending on where you are and here in Canada, tons of ice and snow, a lot of young individuals will fall. No one cares if it's embarrassing, they can get back up. If you take an aging individual and fall and they suffer a hip fracture, their morbidity uh, uh, issues and inactivity goes up substantially. And that can lead to premature mortality or death, which is extremely unfortunate. So the hip region, if you're preserving it longer, we think has massive clinical applications. And you're gonna see a lot more studies and we have think five papers in process looking at creatine and bone mm. uh, and they just take so long and we just finished a study that started in 2013 wow. and we looked at over 200 postmenopausal females who took creatine and, and resistance training for two straight years and then we actually followed them up for a full year to see if they uh, fallen and if they did did they suffer a fracture so we have massive amounts of data we looked at liver and kidney function just going through that now but that was a six-year study and it was a huge duration, so those results will be coming out. So overall, the vast majority of evidence suggests that creatine can have a potential beneficial effect on bone. Some studies do not support an effect, but if you look closely at the data, the ones that do show some potential, creatine was combined with supervised resistance training uh, for probably about a year when it looks at bone mineral density. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's quite clear, isn't it, that creatine, you know, it, 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 it's the ultimate dance partner, you know, with, with these other factors. But like right. you say, it isn't one thing on its own. And of course, that's, I did a podcast quite a few episodes back now with Professor John Hawley about yep. the importance of considering, um, you know, how biology or physiology, et cetera, is an integrative process. 
uh, which brings me back to the issues of reductionist, you know, thinking and 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 so on. Um, but I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, I didn't want to forget about uh, another part of the body which seems quite promising for this, which is the brain, um, the spinal cord, um, etc. Well, what's happening there? Because you know we're so focused on creatine and muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, and to a certain extent, you know, we can we can see how that links to the bones and so on. But like, why the brain? You know, how's how's that doing something for the brain? And this is the one of the areas that seems to be where you may not need the exercise to get some of these potential effects. Hmm. It's traumatic brain injury. Uh, Dr. Ross, as you mentioned, a big interest in concussion. Athletes, concussion is extremely uh, huge. And you look at all the cognitive uh, effects, sleep deprivation for students. So the theory is that creatine has a really difficult time getting across the blood-brain barrier. That's why in its infancy, and Craig and uh, Dr. Rawson uh, published a really good review article a couple years ago, suggesting or potentially insinuating that the dosage of creatine that we're used for muscle and potentially even bone is not near enough and you may need a lot more. So now creatine was getting a lot of press probably in the last five years of how it may have potential brain uh, uh, benefits. I don't know of the studies that have looked at the benefits of exercise plus creatine versus creatine alone. And that's something for an RCT to be developed because we all know when you exercise, everybody feels better and we still can't explain the endorphins that's going on when you look at functional MRIs of what's lit up and, and, and blood flow and things like that. And can creatine augment the effects of exercise? Uh, but it's uh, it's huge in its infancy. There's a lot of good researchers around the world that are starting to look at the effects of that. So it's, uh, it has enormous potential, but again, clinical trials need to be done. And then it comes down, well, how are we going to do this? Do we just take a group of healthy people and hope they get a concussion by putting them on creatine? So you can do it in some animal models specifically or mathematical modeling, but it's almost like we need to take a big football team and say, we're going to randomize you into a creatine and placebo group before the season. Based on prior years, we know that 15% of the team gets a concussion, and then you're almost, as a researcher, hoping they get a concussion, which goes completely against ethics, say, we're hoping you get injured so we can see the effect. And so that's the difference there where see the effect on cognition, that's fine, but when it comes to accelerating post-concussion syndrome uh, recovery, you would almost say, well, they didn't take creatine before they got a concussion, you're just giving it to them now, how is that any different than the natural healing process? That's why it's so difficult with all these variables to look at, but it has some of the potential. That's great. I, it's exciting. Um, it I can see why you've managed to make a career out yeah. of this. And clearly, there's a lot more. And I think right. you raise yeah. a very interesting point, which I suspect will link to the responder, non-responder uh, yeah. uh, topic, where, you know, depending on who we're talking about, and I, you know, whether their their needs, their preferences, their choices, their socioeconomic, you know, <laughs> issues, is going to heavily influence um, their day to day exposure to to creatine. Right. Um, and obviously, someone who's, you know, eating creatine rich foods all day uh, is engaged in activity where the body's using creatine mm-hmm. and you know storing and loading creatine and so. I can see there's an angle there, um, but you know there's a there's a new and there's a new um, you know a new popular uh, uh, diet in town, which of course is being plant based. Um, not even not even veg- vegetarian is 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 now unpopular in the room, and it's plant based. And of course, 
everything we just talked about um, really only comes from, you know, animal foods. So, you know, and again, from the wider, bigger picture, we're talking about health. We have to acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people arguing that a plant-based diet is better for you than an animal-based diet. I mean, how do we, how are we supposed to, to, to think about that? And, you know, um, what are your, what are your thoughts on the answer? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, and for the record, I'm not a vegetarian and, um, I try to emphasize seafood, obviously being from the uh, East Coast of Canada, but there's enormous, enormous benefits from a plant-based diet, from overall health to sustainability to greenhouse gas, whichever it is. The issue sometimes for vegetarians is getting the essential fatty acids and essential amino acids. And ironically, all the commercial creatine products are plant-based because it's a lot cheaper to extract it, obviously, from plants, so arginine, glycine, methionine. And... Uh, the potential benefits are there, and a, a recent review came out from two of my uh, colleagues on the potential benefits from a, a, a multifactorial lean tissue mass, fat mass, endurance for vegetarians who take exogenous or dietary creatine supplementation. So for all the vegetarians listening, it's potentially a very important thing to consider, especially if you're an exercising individual where strength, bone health, maybe cognition, endurance, and recovery are important to you. Um, so a lot of individuals have switched to a semi-plant-based or a total plant-based diet. And so that is totally fine. I'm not aware of any detrimental effects to athletic performance. As long as they're educated, getting the essential amino acids and the essential fatty acids. Of course, being on a plant-based diet, you're never going to have to worry typically about carbohydrate or glycogen content. But then you flip it now with a bigger, uh, uh, just ketone diet. How is that affecting exercise performance? And you know, five years ago, it'd be ludicrous to people say, oh my God, we're going back here and you want me to eat 90% of my diet from fat. And then the articles that come out say, you know, it may uh, extend low intensity aerobic exercise, but it's terrible for high intensity. And for the exercise physiologists, like, well, that kind of makes sense. We kind of know the importance of carbohydrate. Very small, few population, and, and we're probably two of those to say, well, you know, we know carbohydrates are beneficial, but the average person has been so scared taking in carbohydrates because they immediately say well carbohydrates make you fat i'm like like no surplus of calories will make you fat calorie a carbohydrate calorie in theory is a calorie but it's totally different from a molecular and uh, digestive process than a fat calorie as well as protein mm. so a lot of individuals from mainstream media say well i need to lose weight i need to eat a whole bunch of fat and i'm like well wait a bit what about your calorie deficit i bet you all these diets if they do work at the end of a 24-hour period there's some differences in metabolism, but I would have to bet, yes, that a ketogenic diet is working because you're probably taking in less calories than you did before a ketogenic diet. I carve vice versa. So, so confusing. You can actually see why all, everybody in the world is so confused. They don't know what to eat anymore. Um, but when it comes to a plant-based diet, the antioxidants and the fiber, and you probably get a, a plethora of benefits, there's yeah. no detrimental effects as long as they're educated on combining certain, uh, non-complete protein sources and that's why i think a lot of vegans or plant-based individuals will have a supplement a protein and then they may not be getting creatine through their diet so they may consider that as well so it's even for scientists it's so confusing every day you wake up there's a new type of diet oh, yeah. um, and you just kind of shake your head and say whatever works for every, or one person may or may not work for the other you know well that's it isn't it and that's why i'm obsessed with two words in particular one of which is context let's talk about the context and the other yes. one is relevance right <laughs> yeah you, right. you you can do this but should you and yeah. you know um i think it's interesting 
partly because particularly as a nutritionist you know i hear people using words like um you know calories how many calories we eat you know how much protein do we eat we don't eat calories we don't eat protein we eat food that contains those things right and and in varying levels and in some cases people have gone out of their way to avoid an entire food group like you've just mentioned um what are the implications on um having a habitual non-creatine you know rich diet as in no creatine at all um you know is there a certain process of exposure that the body needs in order to be able to utilize synthesize store creatine because we have mentioned earlier that there's a there's a fairly acute response that you would likely get from taking creatine but but is that likely the case in people who just have no creatine in their daily diet yeah, and they may never know any adverse effects, and, and nor do I expect any adverse effects. They can live healthy, exercise at a high intensity because they're probably producing two to three grams naturally through even those plant-based amino acids, arginine, glycine, methionine. So no detrimental effects whatsoever. It's where we see a, an individual who didn't know the effects of supplementation, and then they consume it. It's no different if you give someone who's never consumed coffee before, a, a large coffee from Starbucks or whichever, they're probably going to get an effect. And so, but if they never had coffee the rest of their life, they probably don't know any difference and they exercise at a high intensity. Um, So that's how I sort of put it in context. You do not need creatine supplementation, but creatine can, and that's the key word, can give you a little boost to your exercise program. And it has some other health effects. So plant-based individuals uh, watching who have never taken creatine supplementation, I'm like, that's fantastic. You definitely don't need it. Uh, However, creatine can really help that population. And I also argue if you're on a carnivore diet, consuming maybe lots of red meat or seafood on a daily basis, a lot of people say, should I take creatine? I was like, well, why wouldn't you if you're considering it? Because we don't know that maybe you need more creatine in even what you're consuming for the brain or other health aspects. Mm. So it has this multifactorial effect that we just don't know, does diet completely wipe out the benefits or not? So do you need creatine supplementation? As you talk about, it's the word supplement. No, you do not, unless you have a creatine deficiency from a medical standpoint. But uh, a a plant-based individual can exercise at a really high capacity. Win gold medals, whatever you're trying to do without creatine. But from a lab perspective, it may allow you to accelerate your training a little bit more. So that really comes down to the relatively of the context of what the the person's trying to achieve. Yeah, and also you made um, an important point earlier that, you know, researchers initially were just thinking about how much creatine is needed to you know optimize these muscle centric you know benefits we're trying to get from it but it does more than that like you said all the way up to the brain and neuroprotective benefits and so on if someone is older Mm -hmm. but still highly active um doesn't eat as much protein because we know that they don't and or they're not eating enough relative to what they're Mm -hmm. trying to get out of their protein. Is that a scenario like you've already inferred where if anything, we need even more creatine in our diet? Is that, is that the situation? And that is my, in my opinion, speculation too, because uh, some of the best uh, protein researchers, uh, Stu Phillip, Luke Van Leeuwen, they've come up with, and Bob Wolf, they come up with this term called aging anabolic resistance, where as we get older, we have a blunt response to weight training. We need to do more instead of telling the population do less because you're going to hurt yourself. And then we also have a blunt response to protein. 
So ironically, as we get older, we typically have a decrease in thirst and satiety, and we financially may not be able to, uh, to purchase expensive protein foods. And for a long time, it says, well, you're inactive, you don't need protein. And then we've sort of lied. We now need way more. So if a young individual responds to just say 0.25 grams per kilogram of protein per meal, the aging individual may need double the amount to get response. And when I start to look at our data in aging individuals, a lot of times we'll do 0.1 gram per kilogram, which is about eight or nine grams of creatine a day. And we'll start to see non-significant results over time, but we see a trend. So then we say, well, if the exercise training was longer or, and I've started to put this in my papers, the dose of creatine may need to be larger. So just like protein is larger, we think maybe the dose of creatine needs to be larger. And this study needs to be done because again, if you're losing type two muscle fibers, we need something to overcome that loss. And I'm speculating as we get older, just like protein, we need more. So I'm gonna start developing a series of studies, uh, dose uh, response studies, looking at a typical dose, but maybe we need 0.2 grams or maybe the loading phase or even half of that needs to be done over time for the aging individual. Who knows in the frail population when they're 80 years of age, they're under so much oxidative stress, maybe we need a lot more. So yeah, I can research creatine till I'm blue in the face and we'll still never have uh, all the answers. Um, but we're, we're sure working on it. So those are the next areas of research. I think a, a graded dosing study should be, should be looked at and considered. Great. And this leads me into something I suspect we've sort of answered already, but you know, people love to t talk about being a responder or a non responder. Right. And perhaps it's more of a case of you, you, you know, you, you either are or are not taking the right dose for your unique circumstances mm -hmm. in your relevant context yep. um because being a responder non-responder is not black and white is it correct no it, everybody's different and one of the biggest things people say hey i took creatine it didn't work or not so if you look at initial creatine stores as being probably the main driver and then the, your type 2 muscle fiber kinetics your habitual creatine intake and then i would say the last two that uh dictate your response enough to creatine is gender sex as well as age so if you take an aging female, postmenopausal, that has, is on a plant-based diet, my speculation is that individual would probably respond to creatine more favorably than a younger female, premenopausal, that's on an omnivorous diet. Same sex, but you're looking at some of the effects of, of, of their diet or genetics that play a role. So one of the issues when it comes to creatine research is we speculate as a researcher that everybody's going to positively respond to creatine. And then when you look at the data, percent change over time, 80% might have a positive increase in muscle. But then how do you explain someone who has a decrease or no change over 12 weeks of resistance training? Maybe their diet, genetics, sex, whichever it is. So it, it, it's very, uh, it has high variance and variability. And no, that's great. And I guess because we're going to run out of time here, uh, and obviously <laughs> folks can read the uh, the, uh, posi the 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 position stands right. and uh, related papers and listen to my other podcasts and so on. There's uh, no end of content for them to right. uh, feast on. But I guess the uh, one of the final things we need to quickly talk about is, um, and it's related to sort of the you know the can but should you consider considerations that people might make. Um, you've made it quite clear that there are a whole host of reasons to take 
creatine, especially if we get the dose right. right. Um, but is it safe? Is it safe right. to do that? And, um, you know, like, like, like the conversations that I've had with people about, you know, protein, there are a number of, um, you know, quite amazing myths that exist about how dangerous protein can be to certain people and, you know, kidney disorders and so on. What, what is the situation with uh, creatine and how robust is the evidence that enables you to come to those conclusions? Yeah, it's overwhelmingly safe. So I'll put it in context. When you hear about potential uh, side effects of creatine, it's usually during the initial phases of supplementation and typically during the loading phase. So some uh, cases of muscle cramping, uh, bloating, GI tract irritation. When you look at all the organ or cellular data from blood to kidney to liver to cardiovascular effects, randomized controlled trials, clinical trials in all uh, spectrums, we see no increase in proteins in kidney or liver function. Filtration rate is not impaired. And just like protein, it seems to have no adverse effects compared to placebo. So you have a comparator to look at. And so if you take 100 people uh, randomly as, uh, 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 randomized from uh, any population, and you get 50 people creatine and 50 placebo, there's no greater increase in adverse effects. So we still conclude it's one of the safest, most effective dietary supplements for overall human physiology. So there you have it. I mean, there's lots of reasons to take it. Mm -hmm. There aren't too many reasons to worry about taking it. Right. And really that's more a case of, you know, you, 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 a positive side effect for most people is they're going to gain some weight. The negative angle there is people who are frightened of gaining weight i guess and or certain endurance athletes you know if you are taking it at the wrong time in your training and competition schedule um you know you you, you just need to be a little bit more mindful of, of the timing issues and yeah. the the unloading side of it actually is yeah. worth mentioning yes. you know how quickly yeah. you can, uh, ameliorate and that. so I'll, I'll, I'll briefly talk about a couple of things so when we don't do a loading phase and you give maybe three to five grams a day or 0.1 gram per kilogram we don't actually see that drastic increase in weight so we see a lot of happiness or, or people are more pleased with the gradual increase maybe over a six or 12 week study you've got an increase in muscle mass but they don't see that huge fluctuation in body weight during the first week uh, you mentioned creatine timing. Uh, uh, myself and Dr. Scott Forbes and, and Jose Antonio, we've looked at a series of studies. The timing is kind of irrelevant. We think we just need to get in the body. But if you had to take it, we minimally suggest a slightly greater benefit immediately after exercise. You think some of your transcription factors and genes are turned on from exercise that you might get a, a slightly greater uh, benefit with that as well. Um, and, and so that's something that's assumed post-exercise. Uh, but as long as you're getting it within a 24-hour period, we think creatine can be taken up into the muscle uh, uh, very positively. Uh, but the timing seems to be irrelevant per se. You might get slightly greater benefits post-exercise. So if you don't want to do the loading phase, you can take as little as two to three grams a day, which is about one-third of a teaspoon. And you just it just takes longer to saturate the, the muscle. If you want to take a little bit more, 0.1 gram, go on a scale per kilogram. So if you're 70 kilograms, that's only seven grams a day. You can take it in a bolus dose, or you can split that up throughout the body. So we see there's many variations depending on uh, the person's preference with that over time. That's great. And, you know, I think what's great about where we're at with the body of knowledge on this, mm -hmm. which you've contributed heavily towards, you know, and, and resources like these position stands and what we've discussed in this podcast right. provides people with 
quite a lot of information to be able to make, you know, some sound decisions as to, you know, should they, shouldn't they, and uh, when and, and how much and, and so forth. But just as a little sort of way of tidying up our conversation here, yeah. um, some sort of summary um, about creatine monohydrate, um, you know, a bit like the sort of a conclusion to the position stand. What, what do you want to leave us with then as it relates to creatine monohydrate? Yeah, I think some of the, the big take-home messages that a lot of uh, individuals we be looking for is that before you talk about creatine, I think resistance training or weight-bearing exercise is the first thing you should consider. And that's obviously uh, in addition to sleep, proper nutrition. Creatine is the icing on the resistance training or weight-bearing cake. It can give you substantial uh, increases from the gains naturally with resistance training. The dosage, you can go as little as 2 or 3 grams a day or a 0.1 gram per kilogram. You take it anytime you want throughout the day. If you had to specifically choose post-exercise, seems to be a very viable strategy uh, with that over time. You can combine creatine with whey protein or other types of protein. And so again, when you're starting to look at it, seafood, red meat can be an easy dietary strategy to, to look at that uh, over time. You should expect no adverse effects from creatine monohydrate supplementation. Um, if you do get a little bit of water retention, that will subside. And it's not magic. It will take a little bit of time before you start to notice an increase in muscle mass. I think strength and muscle endurance will come quicker because of the neurological uh, activation. And it also has potential beneficial effects on bone, other areas of the body, as well as brain. So it's, in summary, it may be the safest overall or most effective dietary supplement we can take from a human physiology or performance standpoint. Excellent. I mean, that's a seriously convincing uh, argument <laughs> Um, and just, uh, I would add to that, um, you know, we've talked about plant-based diets and so yes. on, but of course, what we haven't mentioned is the fact that, um, it's very easy to get creatine monohydrate from non-animal sources, is it not? Right. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, through dietary supplementation or, uh, trace amounts from plant-based diets, but it's very easy. You can get this anywhere. hundred percent pharmaceutical grade. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. So, I mean, yeah, if you, if you want to, go down that stricter plant-based approach right. um, or any other related dietary strategy, um, you don't have to miss out on, um, on creatine based on preference or religion or, or you know, or, or other related uh, considerations right. uh, or cost. Cause quite frankly, it's yes. extraordinarily cheap yeah. uh, relative to most of the supplements that exist out there. And um, I guess the final caveat there is just safety. You just got to be mindful where you're buying this stuff from um contamination doping and so on just make sure right. it's um from the appropriate sources and for professional uh and or elite athletes you know tested for banned substances so on and so forth darren thank you what a masterclass on the topic um that was a awesome conversation we've just had i'm absolutely sure people will have got a huge amount from that um i will link to a number of papers uh, that we've discussed and referred to as well as the podcasts I've done with um, Professor Eric Wilson and Professor Craig Sell. Um, I think these three podcasts are going to be a fantastic resource because they all complement each other in, in so many ways. Um, and uh, also your sort of, you know, research gate and Google scholar and so awesome. on and so forth. Um, if you want to stalk you on uh, social media or, yep. or whatnot, what's the, what's the best way to, to, to find you? 
Yeah. Um, uh, well, thanks for the opportunity. It was fantastic. I had a lot of fun. So Instagram, just Dr. Darren Candle. You can search me there. Facebook, Twitter, easy to find. And uh, yeah, super, uh, uh, had a lot of fun and it was great. Thank you so much. Well, um, um, as I said, um, I've got various things I'm going to link to, podcasts okay. and so on. Folks can just go to our website at www.theiopn to go check out those links to the podcast papers. Um, they can also learn about our other activities that we get up to, namely our professional training and education programs in sport and exercise, nutrition. That's all at www.theiopn.com. I, of course, am Laurel Banner. I look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon. And thank you once again, Darren. Thank you again for having me. Take care. Take care.